A warning. This podcast includes violence, graphic details, and conversations about serious mental illness. This is episode six of Locked Inside. If you haven't listened already, we recommend starting with episode one. One more thing. This is our last scheduled episode of Locked Inside. Over the past couple months, we've continued to record new interviews, and this story is continuing to develop. So as news breaks, we will continue to release new episodes on this feed. Make sure you don't miss them by hitting follow or subscribe on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on social media. Just search my name, Erica Stapleton, or handle at Erica Reports All. I'm about to open an email that sheds light on yet another twist in this story. In June 2021, two months after the group home killing, another charge popped up in the court system for Christopher Lambeth. There it is. Aggravated assault. By this point, he should have been in jail, held on a $2 million bond after he was charged with murder for killing Stephen Howells. But this aggravated assault charge was something new, meaning something happened while he was in custody. I asked the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office, who runs the jail, what happened, but they've been slow to provide any explanation or any of their public records. So I had to go digging elsewhere. And after a few months, finally, someone with the county attorney's office sent over a piece to the puzzle. Court records explaining the charge which included a four-sentence synopsis saying that on April 23, 2021, 11 days after the group home killing, Christopher Lambeth was in a holding cell with another inmate waiting to be transferred when suddenly, unprovoked, Christopher Lambeth started, quote, repeatedly punching, kicking, and choking the other inmate, breaking the other inmate's nose and causing trauma to his face. The wheels of justice turn at glacial speed. He is sick. This is Locked Inside, Episode 6, Intervention. And this time, we take a hard look at how we got to this point, where a convicted double murderer faces new violent accusations. The best predictor of violence in the future is past violence. And where a man wound up dead in a group home that should have had 24-7 supervision. He wasn't violent. He wasn't aggressive. Their paths intertwined with a mental health care system that's supposed to help people. A system facing failure after failure and questions about accountability. And to just walk out and leave. uh, I mean, frankly, I think there should be criminal charges on them. I'm Erica Stapleton, and this time, we're going back to the story of a man who shouldn't have died the way he did. Too many people, when they have mental health, there's such a stigma around it. People withdraw, and, you know, they don't want to deal with it, or they don't know how to talk about it with family, friends. This is Nicole Williams, who you first met in episode one. She's Stephen Howell's ex-wife. He's the man Christopher Lambeth is accused of killing at Tilda Manor. To recap, Nicole was married to Stephen in the early 90s when he first started experiencing delusions. They divorced soon after, both struggling with his symptoms. 
by the time that I left, he was having a lot more delusions. He wasn't violent. Um, he wasn't aggressive. He just wasn't quite living in the same reality as everybody else. And there wasn't a lot with mental health out at the time. So I just kind of didn't know what to do. And I ended up eventually leaving. And then his condition continued to grow and get worse from there. But the love never stopped. You know, we may have divorced, but he's still my family to me. And he's still somebody that has a very important part of my heart. And I will always love. Uh, Given his condition, we knew that he would never be okay and back to normal functioning. But there are so many people who fall through the cracks with mental health. But our main thing was wanting to make sure that he wasn't falling through those cracks. He was getting the help he needed. He was someplace safe, which unfortunately he wasn't. By all accounts, dealing with a mental illness isn't easy. It's not easy for those experiencing symptoms. It's not easy for loved ones to know how to help. And sometimes it's not easy for those with training to try and help people who are suffering. Well, mental health is really um, a really very important part of healthcare. Dr. Carol Olson sees the struggle every day. I think traditionally people liked to hide it under the rug or pretend that they or their family members didn't have a mental health issue because there was such stigma associated with it. Thank goodness some of that is going away. She spent her career working in this field and has been running the psychiatry department at Valleywise Health, a hospital system in the Phoenix metro area, for nearly 20 years. And in those two decades, she's noticed triumphs and also flaws. Arizona has a very small number of long-term type of psychiatric hospital beds. So many of those people just end up getting um, continuously on a round of going in the hospital, getting out, often sent to a group home. They don't stay. Then they get a, they're off their medication. Their symptoms get worse. Then they get arrested for doing something. Then they're back in the hospital again, and it's a continuous uh, cycle. A continuous cycle. Dr. Olson said there really isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. If a person is willing to get treatment and has a, has a relatively treatable problem, you know, they're suicidal, um, but they're cooperating with care, etc., there's many hospital beds for them. It's usually not difficult to find a hospital bed for them. On the other hand, if the person is not willing to get treatment, is highly agitated or aggressive, Uh, or has medical issues, or is demented, for example, and has a severe behavioral disturbance as part of their, their dementia, it can be very difficult to find a hospital bed for them. Or people could wind up in other scenarios where mental health support is hard to come by, like homelessness or incarceration. Drug abuse can also play a role. Right now, the way psychiatric hospitals are incentivized, they're all paid the same. It doesn't matter how complex the patient is. So if you have a more complex patient, either because they're highly violent or self-injurious or they have complex medical problems, uh, psychiatric hospitals are incentivized not to take those patients. And so those patients often are poorly served and don't spend uh, the time in the hospital that they need. Issues with access to mental health treatment extend beyond Arizona. In its latest findings from 2020, the National Institute of Mental Health estimates that 14.2 million Americans suffer from a serious mental illness, 
including diagnoses like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Of those 14.2 million people, only about 65% received treatment. There isn't a lot of data on how often someone with a serious mental illness becomes violent. In fact, some studies suggest that people with SMIs are more likely to be victimized. By now we know how Christopher Lambeth got to Tilda Manor, but we don't really know how Stephen Howells got there. Did Stephen always want to get help? It took a while for him to realize he needed it initially. But yeah, he wanted, he wanted to get better. He wanted to have his life again. In the years after Nicole and Stephen divorced, they still kept in touch, writing letters, the occasional phone call. He always had the greatest sense of humor on it, too. I have one card that said, um, from all of us, you know, we miss you and had like a little apartment building. And he added in, in my head, um, you know, and so he had, he did have a humor about it. But after a while, Nicole said Stephen eventually stopped responding and he became harder to track down. Nicole said she'd try and keep tabs on Stephen through court records which is ultimately what we had to do, too. And what we found doesn't show everything, but it does help piece some of this together. In 2015, there was a notice of eviction filed against him. The next year, in 2016, Phoenix police wrote him a ticket for misdemeanor trespassing in a city park. There aren't a lot of details on the ticket, but the address listed for Stephen is part of a campus that provides resources for people experiencing homelessness. It's not clear why he was there or what happened immediately after that. But more than two years later, a court-appointed advocate submitted a request to get Stephen help. By this point, he'd been receiving mental health treatment at the state hospital. The filing doesn't say when he went to the state hospital or why, but a review in November 2018 stated Stephen Howells believed he had been in the hospital for more than a year. His medical report indicated he had limited insight and impaired reality. A hospital staff person said Stephen Howells was not a behavioral problem, that most of his issues are related to psychosis and delusional thoughts, like believing government officials were tracking him. The filing emphasized over and over that Stephen Howells needed serious help and should have the county assign him a guardian with mental health authority to make decisions on his behalf. But then, Stephen Howells was released from the state hospital in January 2019 and went to live in a group home. He was reportedly stable and sticking to a medication plan, but still had delusions that he was involved with the FBI. The court ultimately denied the request to appoint Stephen Howells a guardian with mental health authority in April 2019. Then the paper trail goes cold again until November 2020. Okay, state your name, please. Sir? Uh, my say, name's yeah. uh, uh, Stephen Scott Howells now. It's the first time we get to hear Stephen's voice as he appeared before a judge. The hearing was actually for that 2016 trespassing ticket. Zero, third degree trespass from September 4th of 2016. You signed that ticket agreeing to come to court on September 4th of 2016, yet we never saw you on this matter. Why is that? 
uh, ma'am. I don't have any memory of this happening, and I have found no evidence that I have signed it myself. There is no address that, I've been, that has been submitted to me of the location of this, this incident, so I find I must move that this be dismissed for, as a clerical error. It didn't sound like Stephen Howells had an attorney with him. He told the judge officers brought him in from an address in Santan Valley, a city southeast of Phoenix, an address for a behavioral health group home in that area, a home he said he moved into just three days before. I don't, I don't, they don't have business cards, and I didn't have it in my wallet. I'm sorry, ma'am. I was not prepared to be arrested. I was a plaintiff calling on the services of the police in Santan. Okay. And the sheriff's department arrested me. And there was nothing done about the defendants. Plural. Who were threatening me to the point of physical provocation. To be clear, Stephen Howells wasn't charged with anything new. The Maricopa County Sheriff's Office said deputies responded to a call for service at the home and took Stephen Howells into custody when they realized he had an outstanding warrant for that ticket. Well, we need to get this matter taken care of because that's the one we have before us today. Uh, so what I'm going to do, and you said you have a problem with transportation? Pardon me? You have a problem with transportation? Yes, ma'am. I, I have a car, but it's not at the house. Okay, but you do have a car. So if I were to give you another court date in the future, you'd be able to get here. Well, it's not at the house. Well, I understand. You'll have time to work that out. Okay. okay. Thank you. So if I give you another court date, some days oh, off. I can, I, I can make some arrangements for a taxi cab here and there. The judge said another court date and said the court would assign him an attorney. And I can't help but notice, it doesn't seem like the judge is aware of Stephen Howell's mental health history or that he could be staying in a group home. January 15th, courtroom 606 at 1.30. So you'll have plenty of time to get your car back and get yeah, where we Yeah, well, need. we'll see. Okay. I, I, there's one way or another I can do it. Soon okay. after all of this, the trespassing case was dismissed. This was five months before he was killed at Tilda Manor. As for when he moved there, a Tilda Manor staff member told police he'd been there about four months. Hearing this all play out and piecing together what we can of Stephen Howell's life, from an eviction notice, to police contact, to the state hospital, to potentially two group homes in a matter of months, it makes me think of what Dr. Olson said about the mental health care system being a continuous cycle. There is a sliver of the population, of that population, who do need long-term, in my opinion, long-term hospital treatment in a secured setting where they can't just come and go. Um, uh, and the reason for that is some of them are resistant to treatment. They, at times, their symptoms don't respond to the medications and other type of treatment we have. And to the extent their symptoms make them at risk of hurting themselves or others, they, they really need to be in a secured setting where people can be assured that they're um, safe. In October 2021, Stephen Howell's family filed a lawsuit against Tilda Manor. The lawsuit claims Tilda Manor failed to provide services for not only Stephen Howell's, but also for suspect Christopher Lambeth. That ultimately led to Howell's death. And the blame didn't stop there. The family updated the lawsuit and later blamed the state health department for missing violations during inspections at Tilda Manor and the state's Psychiatric Security Review Board for releasing Christopher Lambeth to the community. 
an attorney representing Stephen Howell's family said neither he nor Stephen's family could talk with us. In court filings, Tilda Manor denied any wrongdoing and pointed the blame at Christopher Lambeth, the state health department, and other agencies involved. The state couldn't comment on pending litigation. The first and only time someone from Tilda Manor ever replied to my dozens of requests for comment was when the lawsuit was first filed. An email from someone named Jesse Iglesias, who, according to a police report, is a clinical coordinator at Tilda Manor, stated, quote, Tilda Manor is aware of the lawsuit and intends to defend itself to the fullest. Tilda Manor continues to believe that its staff acted reasonably under the extreme circumstances. Tilda Manor thinks it's unfortunate that a lawsuit has been filed based largely on media reports that don't represent the actual events or situation. End quote. I replied and asked them to share their side to this, but no one ever got back to me. If I had their side to this, I would include it. It's not for lack of trying. For the past year, my team has repeatedly asked Tilda Manor and its attorneys to talk with us, but they never agreed. Tilda Manor was obligated to talk to the state, however, when the health department came to investigate after Stephen Howells was killed. We told you last episode that the state's investigation found big problems at the Wild Horse Drive facility, including staff members lacking training or not meeting residents' needs. The state found that the two staff members working the morning of the killing didn't follow protocol when they left Christopher Lambeth inside alone with the other residents. In July 2021, the state health department filed an intent to revoke Tilda Manor's license at the Wild Horse Drive location, much to neighbors' relief. It would be a victory for my family, it would be a victory for our neighborhood, and it would be a victory for the people who live in that home. This is Chris Lineberry, who you heard from last episode. He lives down the road from Tilda Manor. After the killing, he said it appeared residents were able to go back inside that night and continued living there in the weeks that followed. The health department told me that despite the murder investigation, Tilda Manor was still allowed to operate all five of its locations. The wheels of justice turn at glacial speed, and th- this, uh, this definitely didn't happen quickly. I'm just grateful that it happened, you know, that, that they did do a thorough investigation, and as a, as a result of that thoroughness, they were able to put together a solid case to um, to potentially revoke the license. Potentially being a key word there. Tilda Manor asked for a hearing to dispute the revocation and for months kept asking for continuances, which were granted. So as of this recording, the state and Tilda Manor still haven't resolved this and the Wild Horse Drive location still has its license to operate. But this case wasn't Tilda Manor's only problem. Right now on 12 News at 5. A Mesa Group home has lost its license after state investigators found a dozen problems inside. One of Tilda Manor's Mesa locations lost its license to operate in October 2021. The state went to investigate in August 2021 after a complaint that residents were left alone for about 30 minutes to an hour. The investigation uncovered 12 violations including outdated employee records and lapses in protective supervision. One resident told an investigator she contemplated harming herself while staff wasn't there. 
The state also found Tilda Manor installed security cameras inside the house without residents' consent. Apparently, they wanted to keep a better eye on things after, quote, something happened in another facility recently, which I can guess could be the killing at Wild Horse Drive. In the Mesa case, Tilda Manor didn't dispute, meaning it lost its license to run the home. At that point, the state health department said there weren't any residents living inside. The future of Tilda Manor is unclear. As of right now, it's still allowed to operate its four other locations, and it's still listed in good standing in Arizona business records. Lately, when I've driven by, the five locations look empty. Most still had a vehicle or van in the driveway. I wonder if anyone ever thought that a year ago, things could have taken such a sharp turn with so many consequences. What they teach us in psychiatry is that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. The best predictor of violence in the future is past violence. Here's Dr. Carol Olson again, who also ties into this another way. She said she served about 10 years on the state's Psychiatric Security Review Board, the same state board that allowed Christopher Lambeth to go live in the community. She was actually the board's chair when he was first approved to live in the community at the end of 2016. But she resigned soon after that and was never part of any of his hearings while he was living at Tilda Manor. She said she didn't remember Lambeth from her time on the board, but because of her history, she couldn't comment on his case specifically. She could, however, weigh in on the board itself. Were you ever worried that maybe the decision wasn't the right one? Certainly, Every time anyone makes a decision and can't predict the future, you can question, did I make the right decision? She remembered board members would get paid about $30 each day they had a hearing or review material, which doesn't sound like much. Despite that, she remembered that she and her board colleagues took their jobs very seriously and would often err on the conservative side when it came to making release decisions. Let's say the person ends up doing something before anybody is aware that they're deteriorating or not doing well. Um, It sits poorly, obviously, because nobody wants to feel that they were responsible for releasing someone to the community who later does something to harm themselves or others. However, I think it is important to know that many times people are out in the community for years before something like that happens. And it it is difficult to predict with 100% certainty how somebody is going to behave for years on end. Now to our other big story tonight, the state board that allowed a convicted double murderer to be released from the Arizona State Hospital is losing its power to make decisions. Almost three months after the group home killing at Tilda Manor, Arizona's governor signed a new law getting rid of the Psychiatric Security Review Board. All the guilty except insane cases will be managed by the state's court systems, meaning judges will decide whether or not someone should be released early. This is how the state operated until the board was formed in the early 90s. Certain lawmakers and advocates applauded the move back, but Dr. Olson had her doubts. And I wasn't sure that a judge in a busy criminal court would be able to take the time and and have the background in mental health, as many of the board members do, to really make a considered decision about what should happen with that that patient. Um, However, 
you know, I, I guess I still feel that way. I, I, I still feel I wish the PSRB would have been received sufficient resources <laughs> to be able to actually function as it was intended to function, and 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 that they would have held off on making that wholesale change back to the criminal court and and see whether that in itself would have um, would have worked. The change to courts is a big one, but it's not set to happen until July 2023. In the interim, the board is supposed to operate with newer, stricter guidelines. The new law did away with one position, so there's now only four people on the board. And in early 2022, we learned two more board members resigned. At the time of this recording in mid-May, the board couldn't hold its monthly meetings in February, March, and April because there weren't enough people for quorum, meaning all the people deemed guilty except insane who are due for check-ins are waiting in limbo until the governor's office appoints new members. And Dr. Olson brings up a good point. Only time will tell whether this change to the courts will make the state's mental health care system any better. And honestly, that goes for everything we've uncovered. I think that the error is kind of just viewing this, that population of patients as just the same as mentally ill people who have not committed a violent crime. And I personally feel that mentally ill people who committed a violent crime and were found guilty except insane need to have an enhanced type of monitoring beyond what occurs to to those who have not uh, for the safety of the community. Two days, it'll be his 50th birthday and people should know who he is. We interviewed Nicole Williams, Stephen Howell's ex-wife, in September 2021, the week he should have turned 50 years old. And that always has been a guilt that I have carried, that I did not stay there and help him more or find him the help he needed, even though I know now that I didn't have that knowledge base. She said she went on to become a teacher with a focus on helping kids with severe mental health issues. And, you know, I think a lot of it was I couldn't help him, so I wanted to learn how I could have helped. She wishes someone else would have. I will say, personally, I have... I I forgive and I have nothing against Christopher Lambert. He is sick. I think this is the system that let both of them down. A system that allowed Stephen Howells to be killed in a home setting that should have had supervision, that should have been helping him. The two people who were there supposed to be watching, I think, actually kind of hold the most um, animosity toward. When they start having issues, you're the one who's supposed to be there to help and to stop it and to just walk out and leave. Uh, I mean, frankly, I think there should be criminal charges on them. If I did that as a teacher with one of my students, there would be charges on me, you know. Christopher Lambeth is the only one charged in Stephen Howell's death. Gilbert Police told me it closed its case and didn't plan to submit any more charges. At the time of this recording, Christopher Lambeth is scheduled to go to trial on the murder charge later this spring. He's pleaded not guilty in that case. He's also still facing the aggravated assault charge for allegedly attacking another inmate while in custody. He's had a few attorneys over the past year, and his most recent attorney has never responded to my calls or emails. There needs to be systematic change to make sure these things don't happen again. 
But I also think the more awareness there is about mental health, the more it's not just quiet and shunted to the side and people don't want to talk about it or they let people um, leave their lives because they don't know how to deal with it, the more we'll continue to see things happen. After all these years, she's held on to the cards and letters from Stephen, his words sharing love and humor preserved with care as he fell through the cracks. This is our last scheduled episode for our series, Locked Inside. I'll continue to bring you updates as we follow developments with Christopher Lambeth, Tilda Manor, and the guilty except insane population in Arizona. Locked Inside is written and edited by me, Erica Stapleton. Executive producer is Katie Wilcox. Fact-checking is done by 12 News intern Andrew Onadera. Audio mixing is done by Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland. Locked Inside is produced by the 12 News I-Team and Vault Studios. A special thank you to Will Johnson and Reed Redmond at Vault Studios. If this story resonates with you or you want to share your experience, you can send us an email at connect at 12news.com. Thanks for listening to Locked Inside.